In December of 2012, Sue In Lee was working at the University of Washington. She moved from California to Seattle to take the job, but she's originally from Korea. Her parents still lived there. And one day, she got the kind of call everyone fears. Her father, Chol Lee, was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive cancer. It's a stage four. And then it was a surprise to our family. You know, the next day, I just went back to Korea and then met his um, doctor and then um, found that it's incurable, especially in that stage. Stage four means that cancer already spread to other organs. And then our goal is to just try to, you know, extend the you know, survivor time from then. Chul's cancer started in his gallbladder. And not only was it incurable, there actually isn't a single drug that's designed to treat it. Not one. So Chul's doctors gave him a drug designed for pancreatic cancer. That's the organ next to the gallbladder. They hoped it might give him a few more days, maybe even a few more weeks, with his family. While I was taking care of my father, I kept thinking that it would be really great if we can find a drug that works for his cancer. After three months, he passed away. After her father passed away, Suin eventually came back to Seattle. Anyone who lives through a loved one's fight with cancer knows just how awful and heart-wrenching the process is. Millions of people go through that every year and come out different. Like many of them, Suin was changed by her experience. She had a new perspective on life. But there's one thing that sets Suin apart from those people. She is an expert in computational biology, using advanced computer science and artificial intelligence to understand the human body. She's a professor of computer science and biology at the University of Washington. So when she came back to Seattle, she started thinking about her father's cancer through the lens of her work. This cancer is very different for different individuals. So I kept thinking that, you know, if we understand, you know, genetic and the molecular profile of my father's individual cancer, we can potentially find the drug that's going to work the best for him, even if it's a stage four. For patients in that stage, it's really extending, you know, several months of the, you know, lifetime. It means a lot to the patient and to the family. In 2012, Suin's idea was relatively new. Today we call it precision medicine. It's a new field that uses data, like a patient's genetics and biomarkers, to figure out exactly what treatment is going to be most effective for them. And precision medicine could completely change how we understand and treat diseases. From GeekWire.com in Seattle, I'm Claire McGrain. Welcome to Season 2 of our Health Tech Podcast. I am super excited to be back in your podcast feed and to bring you new episodes every month. In today's episode, we're going to see how precision medicine is taking on some of the biggest killers in the Western world. We'll follow Sue In as she builds a precision medicine machine to take on cancer. And we'll also learn how the new field might be the key to unlocking a scientific mystery, one that affects tens of millions of people every year. Stay with us. Support for Health Tech comes from Seattle Children's, whose pioneering research institute is not only changing medicine, but creating life-saving therapies for pediatric diseases such as cancer, type 1 diabetes, sickle cell anemia, and many more. Seattle Children's. Hope. Care. Cure. Before we start talking about revolutionizing medicine, we should agree on some definitions. And to do that, I've brought in an expert. 
My name is Heather Mefford, and I am a researcher and physician at the University of Washington. I'm also the Deputy Scientific Director of the Brotman Beatty Institute for Precision Medicine, which is a newly launched initiative. The Brotman Beatty Institute is very new. It's a collaboration between UW Medicine, Seattle Children's, and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and it just launched in December. The Institute is a $50 million project that is trying to take advantage of a new age of genomic data to make precision medicine a reality. Those were a lot of buzzwords. So what does precision medicine actually mean? Precision medicine um, is really an approach to try to take individual information about the patient, either healthy patient or patient uh, with disease, including genetic information, family history, health history, and environment, and really try to tailor their either prevention or treatment of disease based on the integration of all that information. So in other words, precision medicine is a new approach that takes all the information a doctor has about a patient and uses it to tailor their health care. Right. So it's taking all of that information and making better choices for the patient to decrease their risk for side effects, for example, to maximize the effect that the therapy that you give them is going to have at either treating or preventing a particular disease and kind of making healthcare as efficient as possible for the individual. Now, this sounds like it should be easy. In fact, it kind of sounds like something your doctor should already do. Use information about you to keep you healthy. But precision medicine goes way beyond that. And one big factor is data. Thanks to new technology, we can take blood samples or other cells and completely profile someone's genes in just over a day. One person's genetic profile can hold a terabyte of data. If you printed that into the average-sized paperback, it would fill 3 million books, or about 20% of all the information in the Library of Congress. It's not exactly something you can understand in a 30-minute doctor's appointment. So to help make sense of all that information, precision medicine uses machine learning and artificial intelligence, algorithms that can see patterns and make connections in huge amounts of data. So we're trying to figure out where the what are the genetic changes that are most important today that we understand the best and get those into clinical use first. And then we try to understand the more complex or nuanced genetic factors that play a role in risk, and hopefully we'll be able to bring those to the clinic. So it's kind of a, it'll be a stepwise process, I think, to get this information into physicians' hands in a way that they're comfortable using it. And that all brings us back to Suin. That's the goal she set out for herself. Find a way to understand genetic data so doctors can help patients like her father. When we left Suin, she had just returned to the U.S., she had this new drive, this new goal to change how patients like her father are treated. She has a really revolutionary idea. So she did what any good researcher would do. She wrote a grant proposal. And not just any grant proposal. She asked the American Cancer Society, not a computer science organization, not a technology company, to take a gamble and fund her project. It probably sounded like a bit of a crazy idea. Suen isn't a doctor. She didn't have a new drug that she could make. But despite that, they said yes. It was actually first time for them to, you know, give the funding to the computer scientists. They always funded the experimental biologists. So Suen started on a project that she now calls Merge. That stands for, um, stick with me here, 
mutation, expression hubs, known regulators, genomic CNV, and methylation. Basically, genetic components that influence cancer. Suin joined forces with two doctors, one of whom you may recognize. So my full name's Carl Anthony Blau. I go by Tony. That's Dr. Tony Blau, a blood cancer researcher at the University of Washington. He was one of our guests on the first season of Health Tech. You can hear the episode featuring Tony and his startup All for Cure by scrolling back in your podcast feed or going to geekwire.com slash health tech. Sue In and Tony team up with Dr. Pamela Becker. She's another researcher and doctor. Tony and Pamela are hematologists. They study blood cancers. So they start thinking about patients with a common kind of leukemia, AML. And they ask, how can we figure out what drugs are going to work best based on something we already have, patients' blood samples? Suin told me she loves working with doctors because they have a vision. They know what patients need, but they're not sure how to get there. As a machine learning researcher or data scientist, I can see the specific steps to get there. So whenever I have that kind of discussion, I'm really excited because it's really, you know, integrating very different expertise from multiple fields. The steps Suin is talking about are the ones that any computer scientist would use to create a machine learning algorithm. And the first step is data, a lot of it. Thankfully, Suin's collaborators already had blood samples from patients with AML, about 30 in total. They also had the patient's care history, what drugs they took, and how they responded to them. So they put the blood samples in a gene sequencing machine and got their first data set. Computer scientists call this the training data. Suin fed the training data into the merge algorithm. At this point, the algorithm is basically an infant. It's seeing the world for the first time. It doesn't know what anything is or how anything is connected. But in those 30 patients, merge begins to see patterns and starts making connections. It was learning how genetic data and drugs are connected and how they influence each other. After processing the training data, the algorithm was more like a toddler. It understands some things about the world. It knows if you drop a toy, it'll fall to the ground. But now Suin and her collaborators hit a roadblock. They've taught the algorithm some basic things, but to go further, they need more samples. I personally think this part of the story is super interesting. Suin gets more patient data from publicly available data sets on the internet. You can download it from website. You can also incorporate those data as well. This is one of the really cool things about scientific research. When people work together, a lot is possible. So Suin now has this huge data set and merges making more and more connections. But funnily enough, all those connections start creating a problem. It's making too many connections instead of focusing on ones that are important. If this gene does something important in cancer, then that means that this association between that gene and then any drugs should be considered important. A gene that controls, say, your tear ducts probably isn't as important to treating your cancer. So Suin taught the algorithm to differentiate important and unimportant connections. That's where Merge is today. The algorithm has learned to identify patterns, make connections, and understand which connections are important. It's close to being able to predict a patient's response to some of the most common AML drugs. But Suin says there's still a long way to go before Merge is grown up enough to go into a doctor's office. For one thing, cancer drugs are almost always taken in combinations, so her team is working to build an algorithm that can do more complex predictions. The algorithm that can find a combination of a multiple drugs that's going to have the best you know, synergistic effect. 
They're also working on an independent project that can explain the reasoning behind why an algorithm comes up with a certain conclusion. That's to help doctors feel confident in following the advice once the algorithm makes it into a clinical setting. Merge is well on its way to helping cancer patients around the world, but cancer is unique. It's caused by specific genetic changes, and we understand the genes of cancer fairly well. With most diseases, that is far from true. So how can we apply precision medicine to diseases that are many, many times more complex? We'll answer that question after this break. GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast is brought to you by Seattle Children's Research Institute. We are hoping to make chemotherapy and radiation a thing of the past. Dr. Courtney Crane is a principal investigator at the Ben Town Center for Childhood Cancer Research at Seattle Children's Research Institute. Um, we recognize and, and kind of have become desensitized to the fact that a childhood cancer diagnosis is accompanied by the toxicities that come with chemotherapy and radiation. And so our goal is to come up with something that is better, that is less toxic, and that doesn't predispose these young kids to future malignancies or other complications. What we're hoping is that this type of large immune cell called a macrophage will be able to kind of ignite a patient's own immune system to recognize and eliminate cancer. Go to seattlechildrens.org research to find out more about the work by Dr. Courtney Crane and her colleagues at Seattle Children's Research Institute. That's seattlechildrens.org research. Welcome back. We've been talking about precision medicine in the realm of cancer, where every patient's disease has a unique genetic signature. But for a vast majority of diseases, the genetic causes are not so clear and sometimes not clear at all. Many of them are more complicated than that, and people probably carry a host of genetic changes, each of which causes a little bit increased risk. And when they add up together, you end up with high blood pressure or diabetes or something like that. One of the diseases that is among the biggest mysteries in modern medicine, especially when it comes to genes, is Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's is already in the top 10 killers in the United States, and the number of cases are predicted to triple by 2050. So understanding what causes the disease is very important. We knew that there are very rare cases of Alzheimer's disease that are inherited. That's Suman Jayadev, another University of Washington researcher. And among many other things, she studies neurogenetics, the genetics of neurological diseases. Well, we also knew that at least a quarter, probably more of that, of patients have some sort of familial contribution to their Alzheimer's disease. Um, we know that if you have a first-degree relative that has Alzheimer's disease, you have a higher chance in the general population to also develop Alzheimer's. So there is some genetic contribution, but we just can't, we don't really have our finger yet on what exactly those are. Alzheimer's research is in a really interesting place right now. A few years ago, scientists discovered that people with Alzheimer's have a lot of proteins in their brain, specifically proteins called tau and beta amyloid. Pharmaceutical companies immediately started making drugs that take aim at those proteins. Those haven't been successful, which I think is important for a multitude of reasons. One reason the drugs probably failed is that the proteins in Alzheimer's patients' brains aren't the only problem. Something else is changing their brains, or other parts of their body, or maybe even creating more of the proteins. So researchers tried a different approach. They did huge population studies of people with Alzheimer's. That means they aggregated huge amounts of genetic data and found broad, sweeping patterns. By scanning across the genome on tens of thousands of people, we've identified regions 
that are likely important. Now, what's significant about those regions, though, is that they increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease, but only for a very small amount. And so like other diseases, like cardiovascular disease or diabetes, we interpret this to mean that these are important regions. They may only be important if you have a certain number of them. They may only be important if you have them in a certain ratio or you know certain matrix of genetic risk. So, so that's been really helpful. And then what it's done for Alzheimer's disease is to highlight that uh, the disease is probably more than just excessive protein deposition in the brain. This genetic understanding has really changed what we know about Alzheimer's. We went from thinking these proteins might be causing the problem to realizing that a huge number of genes are risk factors. There could be dozens of different things that cause Alzheimer's in different people. And most of those genetic risk factors have no direct link to the original proteins. These genetic regions that confer risk happen to be in pathways that are beyond deposition of protein. They're pathways that regulate the immune system and pathways that regulate cholesterol transport, transport of protein through the cell. And so it's been a clue for what additional mechanisms we should be studying. And that way, then, you can identify your druggable targets. A precision medicine approach has helped us change our understanding of Alzheimer's. It may even lead to completely new treatments for the disease based on these genetic risk factors. And once those treatments exist, precision medicine will start playing the same role it plays in cancer, helping patients find the most effective care. If you give someone a drug that uses your immune system to clear amyloid, but if that person happens to have unusual immune function, then that's just not going to work. So we really need to know what's your path to Alzheimer's disease and then target that path. And that's not to be so naive as to say that we're going to have personalized medicine where I'm going to know exactly what's causing your Alzheimer's disease, but I'm going to have a flavor for whether or not you're more or less likely to respond to an immune modulatory type of AD drug versus something that's meant to help your protein degradation machinery, et cetera. Suman said she hopes that one day we'll have the same granular understanding of Alzheimer's that we do for cancer. And she says she's hopeful about new science leading us to new treatments. Before I end the show, I want to talk about something that has been in the headlines and on everybody's mind incessantly for the past few months. Personal data. All of the technology we've heard about today was built on the data of real patients patients who are willing to anonymously share their health data with researchers. That data is essential, not just to precision medicine, but to all fields of medicine. New innovations are built every single day thanks to personal health data. I'm going to let Sue-In have the last word on this topic because it's a personal one for her. I think the more patients are open to sharing their molecular or genetic data, the better for the science because it's so important for the machine learning algorithm to learn the correct pattern if we can access to large number of samples. I also got the data from my father's sample. It wasn't actually easy. You know, being a patient, I'm a little more emotional than <laughs> being a scientist. The hospital where my uh, my father was in, I gave consent to them to study his genetics and their molecular profiles. I've been both sides, and then I think that it should, you know, patients really should consider giving their data. It's like donating money. It can be better than that, actually. Thanks for joining us on the first episode of Health Tech Season 2. 
You can find links to all the research we talked about on this episode by going to geekwire.com slash health tech and finding the article that goes along with this podcast. And if you don't already, you should subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. If you need a place to start, try the Apple Podcasts app on any iOS device or the Stitcher app on Android devices. And if you like what we do, leave a rating and a review. It really helps other people find the show. Health Tech is produced and written by me, Claire McGrain, with editing and story help from Todd Bishop. A big thank you to our season two sponsor, Seattle Children's Research Institute. You can find out more about their work at seattlechildrens.org research. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, technology, and geek culture, go to geekwire.com. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.